Thank you for streaming the audio messages of the Fountain Church. Well, listen, as, as you know, uh, a few months ago, uh, I had the privilege of going to Israel, and it was one of the most incredible trips. It was my second time to the Holy Land. Uh, but I, I got to say, there was one picture that stood out above the rest that I, I want to actually show you on the screen. I know it's a little bit distorted because uh, it's a very old photo. And it's a photo uh, dating back to 1909 when 66 families, Jewish families, were able to purchase some basically sand dunes outside of the old city of Jaffa, which was kind of a, um, it was kind of a moment where they were able to purchase some land, but they were only able to purchase like the worst of it. And they, they had this vision of rebuilding. They had this vision of building a city. But what do you do when you have this vision to build? What do you do when you have this vision to see something come to pass? But all you see is sand. All you see is something that you cannot really lay a foundation on. Like what do you do when you want to build but all you see is sand. When, when all of your calculations don't seem to add up, when you're not able to formulate the right formula for it to make sense, what do you do in those moments? And I think for many of us, it's, it's a moment where we give up. Many times in those moments, we, we tend to quit. We just render it impossible. But in Israel, the, the take is a little bit different. I mean, you could imagine... The Six-Day War, Israel is surrounded by enemy armies. The enemy's armies out-troop them two to one as far as ammo and artillery three times, as far as air force four times. And it looked like an impossibility. Many thought it was going to be a second holocaust. It, it, it was just that overwhelming. But, but all, of, all of a sudden you start to see some things shifting around, meaning Syrian tanks are, are retreating fleets of them from just a couple of tanks of Israel's on the Golan Heights because they thought that they were larger than they were. Uh, Egypt was supposed to send a message for an airstrike, but the messenger sent the wrong message. And so it never happened, and it sent all of those armies into confusion. And at that time, Israel had the upper hand invaded. It was, it was a modern-day Gideon story where it was like there was confusion in the land and they were able to get the upper hand. And what they thought was going to be an annihilation was over in six days. Still a lot, a lot of casualties on both sides, which is heartbreaking, but it was nothing compared to, to what was expected. I mean, you think about uh, the, the Jewish people as a nation being dispersed from their land for 2,000 years, yet still maintaining their heritage and the original Hebrew language. It was said as they were dispersed all across the globe that every single year, no matter where they were, they would say, and next year, Jerusalem. And they were saying that for over 2,000 years. Years. Well, what seemed to be an impossibility, what, what didn't quite calculate that they would ever return to the land, they held on to God's promise that said that they would. 2,000 years of waiting, next year. And even though it may not have calculated in the natural because no nation has been able to maintain um, just their, their heritage without a land 
like the Jewish people, but, but there was prophecy written in the scriptures far beyond. And in 1948, we saw a miracle. Our, our uh, parents and grandparents, some of us in here, saw a miracle as they began to come from all different parts of the world back to Israel. Miracle. And so in our day, we would say, you know, things like, it's not logical to believe in miracles. But I'm happy to tell you that those sand dunes, let me show you a picture, is now Tel Aviv. Those sand dunes are now the New York City of Israel and is one of the top 25 financial markets in the world. It's incredible. See, we've been told that it's not logical to believe in miracles, but in Israel, even if you're not a God-fearing person, the phrase is the opposite. That you're not logical unless you believe in miracles. Even the day on that six-day war, some of the top generals said, there's no way that this is possible. And he looked up, and one of the top generals put a psalm inside the wailing wall saying, man, this is all the hands of God. Just absolutely incredible. It reminds me of a passage found in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 1. It says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and bloom or blossom like the crocus. Now, what in the world is a crocus? <laughs> you, you might know it. Let me show you. You might know it as the saffron flower. It produces one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive spice in all of the world. And it grows predominantly best in desert places, meaning the harvest fields for saffron, the largest ones are in Iran. And they just grow well in the desert. But what's interesting about the saffron is it's sterile, meaning it cannot reproduce on its own. The seeds that it produces are sterile. They're, they're non-fertile. And so the only way that this flower has still remained for centuries is with the assistance of humans. And, and the process of this is simply the harvester or the farmer will, will dig up the saffron an extra bulb always grows at the bottom, so they'll break off the bulb, and then they'll replant that there would be new life. And it's just repeated all throughout history, a digging, a breaking, and a planting. And I thought, there's some of us in this room today, and, and you're in one of these seasons, or you might be entering into one of these seasons, or one of these seasons are coming where maybe you have vision to build, but all you see is sand. Maybe you have vision to build financially, relationally. Maybe your soul has just been in dire straits. And you have, you have a desire and a longing for wholeness. You have a longing and desire to build. Maybe that dream that God had put in your heart. But when you look out, all you see is sand. A, a foundation that does not look solid or even calculate probable. I think some of us, we may be surrounded by, by what seems to be enemy armies, just overwhelmed. We just keep getting hit one thing after another. You try to get breath, and then another wave comes and crashes on you, and you're just overwhelmed and stressed. And it just seems like you're getting attacked on every single side, and you're wondering, man, what, what am I going to do? Can I get a break? Anybody ever say that before? Can I, can I just get a break? Right? And, and then maybe some of you, you're just dispersed. Right, like, like emotionally, you're just all over the place. Relationally, maybe there's some disconnects. Uh, again, may, maybe financially, it just seems 
to be a little spread out, a little thin. And you find yourself in this, this place where even on the inside of you, maybe spiritually, you just feel so distorted and scattered. And you're wondering, man, how in the world is all this going to come together? And what I would propose to you is this, is that in those moments, we find out really quick that many times we don't have what it takes to produce the results that we need. We don't have the formula. We've tried to calculate. We've tried to, we've tried to formulate. But there seems to be a sterile aspect when it comes to trying to make stuff happen. And I would encourage you that maybe today, maybe what you need is God's assistance to come and to plant new life in these desert places of your heart, of your home. But with that planting also comes this digging and this breaking and then the planting that leads to new life. And so I started to think, you know, there are many times that a miracle will happen in a moment. But sometimes miracles happen in moments of digging, moments of breaking, and moments of planting. But I think the frustrating thing about miracles is we can't control them. Like you can't fabricate or formulate a miracle. Anybody try? Right? It's frustrating. And, and I don't know if you're like me, but I don't like being out of control. Like I love it when I can fix something, when I can make it work. But when something is outside of my control, it, it's, it's frustrating. And a miracle always is outside of our control. Therefore, it requires waiting. And waiting requires faith and patience and trust. And who has time for that? And so I think this is the devastating part is in those moments, many times we quit and we give up. Not because we want to, but we want to feel a sense of control again. And so at least when I give up, I feel like I'm in some kind of control. At least when I quit, I'm in some kind of control. At least when I stop believing, it's like, man, forget it. It's impossible. At least I'm in some type of control. But then we still end up frustrated because we don't get what we need. And we find ourselves wrestling. You say, well, if we can't, you know, if we can't control miracles, like obviously we can't create them. So what do we do? Well, I, I like what one rabbi said. Look what he says. He's a famous rabbi. Rabbi Shlomo said, full experiences of God or miracles can never be planned or achieved. They are spontaneous moments of grace, almost accidental. Author Bo Lazoff responded, Rabbi, if God realization is just accidental, why do we work so hard doing all these spiritual practices or disciplines? And the rabbi answered, to be as accident prone as possible. In other words, we may not be able to control or create, but we can position ourselves in such a way where we're miracle prone. And, and, and that drops us right into the heart of our text today in John chapter 2. And so let me give you a little bit of context about what's getting ready to happen. So a wedding is happening in a very small region outside of Galilee called Cana. A wedding is happening and, and they run out of wine. Now this is a big deal in this region because... This was a big part of the celebration. The, joy, the, the wine represented the joy of the party. And so the wine runs out. And how many of you guys know that's pretty devastating and embarrassing to the one hosting? 
Because normally these weddings are planned out far in advance. And so when the wine runs out, this is a situation that is very much out of their control. Like they can't run to Target and grab a few boxes of wine. They, they just can't do that. And so they would plan these weddings out far in advance because wine is expensive and it also is a process. So it's not something you can create on the spot. It's something that takes time to ferment. And so it was a situation that was logically impossible to fix. It was just gone. It was, it was out. It's not going to work. But these guys positioned themselves well when the wine ran out. And I believe that as we take a look at what was probably um, not expected on their end, we can learn a couple of things from them. And so how do we position ourselves to be miracle prone? Remember, we can't create, we can't control, we can just position ourselves to be as accident prone as possible. The first one is this, if you're taking notes, shot this down, is simply we need to invite Jesus in. We need to invite Jesus in. Now you think you know where I'm going, but you don't. Um, Look at the passage with me, John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding in Cana took place, or a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Everybody say invited. When the wine ran out, which I think is a great picture, wine tends to run out over a period of time. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine, like hint, hint. Come on, do something, right? And it goes on to say, woman, in a very endearing term, why does this concern concern us? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so so I would would propose to you that if we're going to make ourselves miracle prone, we need to invite Jesus in. Now, I'm not just talking about salvation I'm talking about in every situation. We need to invite Jesus in. But what does that even mean? What does that look like? Well, very simply, it's, it means to invite him in and let him speak into every situation and then do what he tells you. That's really inviting him in. It's not just kind of, hey, you can come in. You can't do anything. You can't touch anything. But you can come in. No, it's saying, Lord, I, I'm inviting you to speak speak into every situation of my life and responding to that, that's what it's like to really invite him in. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 15, he said, this is my heart for you is that you would abide in me and in my word and I would abide in you. And that word abide simply means to make your home in. And so Jesus is like, I want to make my home in you and I want your home to be in me, and how many guys know when you do life in close proximity like that, you tend to find out things that other people don't know. Like, like when somebody lives with you, like over a period of time, there's just this, this sense of comfortability that comes. There's a sense of normalcy that comes with one another. Sometimes it can be, there can be a lot of friction and a lot of tension because they see things and are able to speak into areas that we necessarily don't want everybody to know or be involved in. But there also was a vulnerability, I think, when you live with somebody that over a period of time they get to see you in all different forms and fashions, right? 
And so, so to, to invite him in, to, to, to let him speak into every situation, and to do what he tells us to do. Now, that sounds really spiritual, very practical, and really easy, but it's not. Like, because a lot of times we don't want Jesus to come in. We don't want him to speak to, to any situation or a particular situation. And a lot of times we don't want to listen to him. And I'm included in that. So, so my wife told a story yesterday at the women's breakfast. Ladies, if you weren't here, you missed out. It was so good. It was so, so good. But she told a story there, and I'm going to steal it because I can do that because she's my wife and we're one. So technically it's not stealing. But we were, we were dialoguing the other night about how frustrating it is in traffic when you're trying to get over and nobody's letting you over. It's, it's very frustrating. And I just kind of conclude now that about five to seven people just aren't going to let me in. And then you get that one person that has some conviction and says, let me let this poor guy over, right? But a lot of times the, the frustrating part is I know that you see me. And I'm even pulling up side of you like, hello, hey, hey. And they're just like this, ten and two. Don't look. I'm like, I know you see me in the peripheral, but they're just focused, and then they speed up a little bit because they don't want any type of peripheral eye contact to happen. Right? Some of you guys are that driver. Especially if it's a truck, no way am I letting you over. Or, or they'll look down like they're, they're doing something, they'll look distracted, or then you have the ones that just look at you like, I ain't letting you over. But really what they're saying is, I feel like by letting you in, it's going to set me back. It's going to set me back. And I think sometimes if we're honest, there's times that Jesus is wanting to get in, wanting to speak into a situation, and I don't want him to. Like, Lord, I don't want to dream big right now. I'd rather settle for average. It's a lot easier. I don't want to persevere right now. I'd rather pout for a minute. And have a bad attitude because I just don't feel like persevering. Right? There's times where the Lord will come and want to deal with a particular pain area of our heart. And we just say, no, it's impossible. Just get out. I'm just not interested in what you have to say. I know it's right, but for whatever reason, I'm not ready because I'm just wrestling with disappointment and discouragement and and pain, and I'm trying to process it, and, and a lot of times the Lord is coming, wanting to, to speak into these areas, but we still feel like we can't let him in, or we let him in, and we hear him speak, but we can't do what he says, because there's just this thing that I feel like if I do, it's going to set me back somehow, and I mean, come on, I know some of you, like, you, you, I mean, attendance shows on a regular basis that sometimes you'd rather hear the Raiders speak than God, Right? I mean, let, let's be honest, and, and I think the cool thing is God always has his vengeance because they don't have much to say. Um, that was supposed to be funny, not like a shot. Shots fired, uh-oh. Woo. All right. Moving right along. But we don't want him in, and, and I think many times it's because in our pain or in the funk or in the season that we're in, we do or we tend to or can have a, a false perception, a distorted view of who God is. And, and we, we have this idea that he wants to set us back when really he wants to set us up. Like that, that we serve a God that is good. That he's a good God. Like he's not trying to get into your lane to hold you back 
but rather to move you forward. But the hard part is it, it requires to allow him to dig a little bit. It, it, it requires to allow him to speak into areas that we just, just don't know if I want you to speak in. And it doesn't have to even be super deep. Sometimes we push God out of the simplest things of our life. And, and, and we don't want to let him dig. It's like, no, no, let me, let's just dig. Let's get to the root of this. Let's, let's go a, a, a little bit deeper. And, and, and part of what that looks like, what does it look like to allow God to dig? It simply means to invite him in. Let him speak into a particular area of your life. And then do what he says. It's not calculating. I'm just not sure. Just, man, trust and step. And I think today, what's really kind of sad is they said that one of the new spiritual disciplines now is, is attending church. Like, like I just read a, a report this last week. It's like people don't even want, like we just don't have room for him to speak sometimes. And church isn't the only place, but it's kind of like if, if gathering with the saints is not a priority for us, then opening up our Bible, it's kind of, it, it might be a challenge trying to navigate and do life on your own and not be connected to the greater narrative of what God, the greater story that God is telling through his capital C church of us coming together. Now, you don't need to come to church to have a relationship with God. I get that. But there's something about gathering together that we can't even fulfill, as Pastor Chris preached on a few weeks back, some of the one another uh, uh, commands that God calls us to. We can't even fulfill those things if we're not together. And so, so make, make it in a point, just... Maybe that's the next step for you is just to say, I'm just going to commit to actually showing up to church every week. That may be a new discipline that you need to restructure into your heart and your life so that you can position yourself to hear what God is saying so that you can respond to it. Now, that's not the only one. Obviously, we want you in, your, in the Bible as much as you possibly can, man. Get some podcasts with some good preaching. And man, grab some books. You can get them on audio as you're commuting just to, to, to get God's word inside of you and to allow people to speak into those areas, making sure they're biblical and they're sound, but if we don't know what he's saying, we can't respond, and we're not even in a position to invite him in. So invite him in. I promise you it's going to make you miracle prone, and invite him in. The second one is this, is be diligent and dependent. Be diligent and dependent. Look at the text. It says this. It says in John chapter 2, now six stone water jars have been set there for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, you got to understand the religious system of Jesus' day had moved so far away from God that it, it, it was basically just outward rituals. But their outward rituals could do nothing for the inside. And so it was dry. It was stale. There was no life. There was no power. It was really church that you wouldn't even want to show up. It was just a routine. But it says that each could hold from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now draw some out, he said, and take it to the master of the banquet. Now I want you to see something here. I want you to see this picture of diligence and dependence. See, the diligence was fill the jars and draw. It was just something very practical that God had told them to do. Get some water and fill the jars and draw it out and then take it, right? Just a very practical command. Sometimes I think we're, we're waiting for these miraculous moments, but we're not diligent with some of the simple things that God has already spoke to us. 
<laughs> like, love your neighbor. How about that one, right? Just, it's a very, something very practical that it was, it was okay, Lord, I, I'm, I'm going to be diligent in what you've put in front of me. I'm going to be diligent to what you're speaking to me. I'm, I'm going to fill and I'm going to draw. But then you see him say, now I, I want you to draw and, and take it to the master of the banquet. Now, now, this is where we see a picture of dependence. Because there would be nothing more embarrassing for a servant than to bring a glass of wine over to the master and have it be water. That'd be embarrassing. That would be humiliating. And, and so you, you see this, this picture uh, of diligence, but then in between, in between the, the, the draw and the take, and this is cider because I'm not trying to make anybody stumble, all right? In between the draw and the take, there's dependence. This is where the break happens. Is because I know that as smart as this water is, it will never be this. It's just—it's logically not possible for this to become this. And so you could imagine the, the step of faith of, of drawing and taking, of saying, because we don't know when the miracle happened. We don't know if it was from the time they drew it or if it was on the journey. Like, like we don't know. But it's in between the draw and the take that when all of a sudden Christ gets placed into the equation, this is where the game changes. But a lot of times we want to draw, but we don't want to take. Like, I, I'm just going to draw, but I don't, man, I just, because it's a step of faith. It's a, it's, it's a trust. I, I, I got I to gotta walk this thing out. And that's hard. That's not easy. And so in this moment, in between the draw and the take is where the breaking happens. The breaking off of self-confidence, self-dependence. The breaking off of pride and arrogance saying, God, I'm fully surrendered and trusting and depending that you're going to make something happen on this journey. Because that's all I got. You know, I, I think many of us, we do good on one or one side or the other, right? Some of us are all dependent. We're just like, I just depend on you, God. You're going to provide. And God's like, turn in a resume, right? And no diligence. I got so many doors for you, but do something. And then on the other side, we have, some of us are just diligent, but there's no dependence. Like, we're just, all right, I'm just running the play. I'm doing it, doing it. Look at me, God, look how awesome I am, right? We're just doing it and being diligent. And we're so you know, we really believe that the formula, our formula, or how we're doing it or whatever is going to produce the result. And then what that ends up being is frustration. And then it leads to arrogance because we're like, look at all my diligence, God. You owe me. Like, make something happen. Let's go. Opposed to the both and. Like, we need both. I'll prove it to you from Scripture. We see this all throughout Scripture where, where God doesn't need us for the miraculous, but he invites us to be a part of it. Like, like you have the disciples, they go fishing all night, and Jesus says, hey, guys, you catch anything? They're like, no, man. He says, why don't you try throwing the nets on the other side? Now, hold on. Like, we, the boat's not that wide, Jesus. I think we covered that ground. But we're going to be diligent to what you said. And so what they do? They threw their nets on the side. And then what did they do? They waited because the miracle's out of their control. 
And then they pulled up the nets. And more fish than they, than they could contain. And, and so, so hear me out on this. Many times God uses our obedience to accomplish his purposes. And, and I think that's super special. Like God invites us to be a part of what he's doing. Not all the time, but on many occasions you see this diligence and dependence. And, and let me just make something very clear. If you're taking notes, jot this down. God doesn't save us by our obedience, but he works through our obedience. So again, salvation is purely a gift of God by his grace. So don't get any ideas like you can, you know, be diligent and, and, and that's going to result in your salvation. That's not true. It's not by works. It's simply gift and grace. But once you get saved, God begins to so transform your heart, it leads to action. And that action and that obedience God uses in his sovereignty to accomplish his purpose and on many occasions work the miraculous. And so, so like, let, let, me, let me give you another passage, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 31. Because some of you are looking at me like, for real? The horse is prepared for the day of battle. I mean, we got the horses ready, the chariots. Man, we're ready to go. But the victory belongs to the Lord. Diligence and dependence. Diligence and dependence. When, when, I, first, uh, when I first saw Jackie, how many of you guys know, it was, uh, it was diligence right off the bat. Like the moment she walked by, I didn't know her, she didn't know me, but I was like, I'm going to get to know this girl one way or another. There was going to be a diligence. But then how many of you guys know, I saw her, but she didn't see me. So that led to a dependence. Like, God, you got to speak to her. Please do something. A miracle. What in the world? It's a miracle. I married up. Some of you guys are like, man, how is she with him? I don't know. <laughs> Diligence, dependence. But listen, I, I know dependence is a scary place. And especially when you have been let down and you, like you just, you, you're, you're just getting hit on every side. And you've been greatly disappointed. It's easy for your, your picture of God to get a little bit distorted. Matter of fact, I think it's a little bit natural. Because we're human. And we wonder, like, God, how could you let this happen to me? And so that's where truth is really, really important. Opposed to our feelings. Opposed to our, our calculations. That's where truth is really important of who God is. Because we can really be secure in our dependence. And I think John gives us a hint of this. In the first verse, look what he says. He says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana, in, at Cana in Galilee. The third day. Now, the third day is very significant in Scripture. Obviously, um, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, almost as if John were to say, hey, all this is possible because a crucifixion is coming and a resurrection. Almost as if to say, listen, there's coming a day. Where his cup is going to be empty and he will say, I thirst. You guys remember that moment on the cross vividly, right? Where, where, where he would empty himself that our joy would overflow. And what was, what was so interesting is in that process, there was some digging. They, they dug a tomb. A man had dug a tomb. 
And then there was some breaking. And I think, listen, like I said, miracles can happen in moments. And in the breaking, uh, the prophet Isaiah said as as Jesus' body was being broken, he was beaten that we might have peace. He was broken. There there was a breaking and, and miracles were happening. And then what did they do? They planted him in a tomb. And I think this is so crazy. When the enemy thought he had won the greatest victory, he simply assisted in the greatest miracle. Unbelievable. And so so the cross and the resurrection scream that you can trust him. He's the God of his word. You can depend on him that those who put their trust in him will never be put to shame. Now, Now it says that the master of the ceremonies tasted the wine and he looked at the bridegroom and says he didn't even know where the wine came from. He just thought it was part of the party. He didn't know that a miracle had happened. But the servants did. It said that the servants knew. Can I just tell you, Dream Team, Dream Team, you are going to see and experience some things that the average person just sitting and enjoying is not. They think, man, this is just a great party, but you're like, no, a miracle is in motion. Because only the servants knew, the Bible said, what had taken place. And, and so, so, so get this picture. He said, normally the choice wine is brought out first, but you have saved the best for last. And can I just tell you this morning is that I really believe that your best days are still ahead. That some of you guys are surrounded. Some of you are in a desert. Some of you are feeling like you're pressed on every side. You're scattered. You don't know how it's going to come together. But God is planting new life. But there's a breaking. There's a digging on the journey. But the miracle moments just don't happen in the planting. They're happening on the journey. It's part of the process. I wish and I thank God for the moments of suddenlies. But my life has been full of way more miracles that have been digging, breaking, and planting than they have been suddenlies. But this is the best part, and I'll wrap up with this. Best part wasn't the water turning into wine. The best part, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, this is the key. His disciples believed. What happened was faith was planted in the disciples that led to a culmination of so much life for the rest of the journey. Can I just tell you that that wine at the party eventually run out, but their faith continued and continued and continued and lives changed the process of digging, of, 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 of breaking, and of planting continue to go and to grow. And so can I just tell you, your greatest need you may think is the wine, but really your greatest need is to, for God to plant new faith inside of your heart in Him for the rest of the journey.